This is the art of charm. Learn everything you need to know to crush it in business, love, and life. The art of charm is where ordinary guys become extraordinary men. Welcome to the Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger. The Art of Charm brings together the best minds in the industry to teach you guys how to crush it in life, love, and at work. Imagine having a mix of experienced mentors teaching you their expertise, packing decades of research, testing, and tough lessons into a concise curriculum. We've created one of the premier men's lifestyle programs available anywhere, and it's free. This is the show we wish we had a decade ago. Now, this show is about you, and we are here to help you become the best man you can be in every area of your life. If you're new to the show but you want to know more about what we teach here at The Art of Charm, check out The Art of Charm Toolbox at theartofcharmpodcast.com slash toolbox. That's where we've got a lot of the fundamentals of dating, attraction, body language, eye contact, vocal tonality, networking, breakups, etc. And we've got our live programs running every single week here in Los Angeles, California. Details at bootcamps.theartofcharm.com. There's two dots in there. Or give us a call here in the office, 888-413-7177, or just email me, jordan at theartofcharm.com. I do read everything, and I'm looking forward to meeting you guys here at The Art of Charm. Today, we're with my friend John Lee Dumas. Now, you guys have probably heard of him, or if you haven't, he runs Entrepreneur on Fire. It's a really popular show in iTunes as well. He and I are going to talk about, well, going to war, or not going to war, as in my case, and we're also going to talk about something called The Courage to Quit, and what it can do for you, and why it's actually important going all in as an entrepreneur and why you probably should not do it, why luck is always part of the equation, imposter syndrome, and how it can actually cost you real money or worse. This and more on this episode, so enjoy with John Lee Dumas. Tell me what you want other people to know about you who haven't heard of you before. So yeah, you know, Jordan, I'm just a, a country boy from the state of Maine, grew up there for the first 18 years of my life, and then I Went to college on an Army ROTC scholarship and did four years as a cadet there. I know you did a little bit of that um, in your college days as well. That's right. And then um, when I was when I graduated in 2002, I was commissioned as an officer in the U.S. Army. What's pretty interesting about that is we were the first officers commissioned post 9/11. So, like I knew and we all knew that we were going to get in some pretty heavy business. And sure enough, about Six months later, I was deployed to Iraq on a 13-month tour of duty as an armored platoon leader in charge of four tanks, 16 men, during the bloodiest time of the war. I mean, this was the Fallujah the Fallujah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was, I was there. Aramadi, Habaniya, I mean, all the bad spots, you know, they sent us the tankers in there. So it was definitely a really intense 13 months, but luckily I, I made it back uh, safe and sound and finished out my four years of active duty, and then I entered the reserves for the following four years. So that kind of allowed me to to try the civilian world. And you know, a lot of people will be like, wow, the Army must have been tough. And it was in some ways, but it was really after the Army that my life kind of fell off the, the hinges a little bit, kind of went off track. A lot of people who listen to the show, they maybe know that I went to ROTC and then just like, I literally couldn't deal with the structure. I, I mean, it, it's funny, but it's it's super true because looking back on it, you know, I found out that like some surprise, surprise, they weren't always looking at my best interest. And they were like, oh, languages aren't important. And I was like, these guys don't know what they're talking about. At the end of the day, I just couldn't handle the fact that like everything was so regimented and, and like, duh, I was an entrepreneur and just didn't know it at the time. I just thought I was like a kid who didn't have his crap together, uh, which I also was. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to oh, yeah. put icing on that cake. But, but well, what made you, first of all, want to join the military? And then what did you feel like when you signed up for ROTC, which is like, cool, free college, to, oh, shit, we're in a war now, like a real one? <laughs> so what made me join? Um, in one word, cluelessness. Um, I was 17 years old. I didn't know. Props to your honesty, because that's you know my, why everyone joins. <laughs> I didn't know my ass from my elbows, literally. And I was just like, oh, wow, like my father was in the military, and that's pretty cool. And, you know, he saved up $30,000 for my college, which won't even pay for a semester. But he told me that if I get a scholarship somehow, that that $30,000 will be mine. And, you know, to a 17-year-old kid, $30,000 might as well be a million dollars because it's just a massive number at that point in your life. You know, I don't think I ever had more than $100 in my pocket. So I was like, what can I do for a scholarship? So that's when I applied to the Army, Army ROTC and got accepted. And 
Next thing you know, I'm on a full ride at Providence College in Rhode Island training as a cadet. And then when you got deployed and went to Fallujah, I can imagine <laughs> your mom being like, whose idea was it to tell him he could keep the money if he got a scholarship? And your dad was probably like, please don't. I mean, not that your parents wouldn't have said it anyway, but he was probably really kicking himself and being like, please, God, don't. I will tell you, my mother that. looked my father in the eyes and said, if John doesn't come back from Iraq, I will never forgive you. And like, it was like coming from the core of her being. Of course. And he kind of half jokes about it now, but he's like, yeah, he's like, I would totally be, you know, some divorced bum if you had him hit it back from Iraq because Selena would divorce me. Yeah. And he'd just blame himself forever. And, you know, it would be right. downhill. Yeah. That's awful. I mean, like, all joking aside, like, yeah, I can't imagine what people don't really understand who are younger than us, I think, is when we were growing up. The only war, you're the exact same age as me, the only quote-unquote war we really had, aside from special forces, like low-intensity conflict, we had the Gulf War in 1991, which you and I were like 11 or 12 years old, and all we did was roll into Iraq, wave flags around, take a crap load of prisoners. I think there were like two casualties, and they were like a, it was like a mechanical helicopter failure or something, rolled into, <laughs> you know, rolled all through the whole thing, immediate surrender, no big deal. And this time around, you know, the second time around when we actually took Saddam down, it was a completely different story. So we thought, uh, you know, we, we don't have real war. And when we do have a quote unquote war, it's just like Superman versus a bunch of street thugs, like Batman versus the guys in the alley who can't even see him. It's like USA basketball back in 1992, you know, the dream team with yeah. like Larry Bird and and uh, Kim Olajuwon just like winning 140 to 10. Yeah, you yeah. Know, that was the desert war. And, you know, because, but, you know, one thing that's pretty interesting about this is I was the exact same age as you, like you said, like 11. And do you remember, though, there was a little bit of nervousness going around about those vaunted Scud missiles. Like those Scud yeah. missiles were going to just blow all of, you know, our forces, the kingdom come. So luckily we had the Patriot missile, you right. know, that was going to shoot them out of the air, which, never happened either but the scud missiles had no accuracy and it didn't matter the patriot missiles had none either yeah no the scud missiles i mean they they only could hit a few places they they launched them and i think one hit tel aviv and and like even that was a surprise that they could even hit israel because it was too small <laughs> and you know the israelis were kind of like whatever dude we have gas masks this thing basically it was like dropping a car on something and they were like what a bunch of knuckleheads and then we had to stop Israel from going in and like annihilating the rest of Iraq with their air force. <laughs> yes. And it, it, that was what we sort of saw it as. And even then, when we were that young, Israel was just somewhere in the Middle East. We didn't think of it as like a, an important strategic ally. So like you went in to the military, got a free college scholarship, probably thinking this is really cool. Suddenly you're in a tank battalion outside Fallujah and it just got so real. I mean, how quickly was that escalation from oh, cool, you know, I guess we are getting deployed. I never thought I'd see the inside of a tank, but this is neat. And then suddenly it's like, you hear like, plink, plink, and it's like people shooting at your tank, and you're like, <laughs> oh, crap, this is real. I could I could die. Like, one of those, if it hits me, is going to go through and out the other side. I mean, when was there like a defining moment where that kicked in and you were like, whoa? It was crazy because it was up to our senior year in college that like all was well in the world. And then, you know, we woke up that September 11th, 2001, which is my senior year in college, to the attack, you know, to the Twin Towers coming down. So it wasn't until that point that we were even thinking that our military service was going to have anything to do with any kind of danger. You know, it was, we thought it was just going to be another four years, you know, romping around in the woods and having fun. That kind of gave us a, a glimpse of what could happen, but it still was like, okay, these are just like, you know, dirty rag terrorists that, you know, we're going to have to send the SEAL teams in for. Um, and that's about it. You know, it wasn't really until the beginning of 2002 that it became obvious that we were looking at potentially a large scale conflict. And and even then it was like, like, how big could this conflict be? But, you know, the reality is, is that it came on incredibly fast. You know, it all happened in under a year. And then next thing you know, I am in Iraq with this, you know, tank platoon as a 23 year old where I can literally just remember six months ago doing a keg stand, you know, at a frat party. Right. Now I'm, you know, stuffed in a tank, you know, trying to, you know, do what I need to do to complete the mission, which you can read between those lines. And that's a completely different ballgame. 
Yeah. I mean, real responsibility was thrust upon you in such a massive way. For the first time in my life. For the first, the only <laughs> time, yeah. Like, even if you fail your finals, nobody dies. And no. certainly not, not anybody you know would even no. care. You know, right. like it's in, in the end, it affects you. And then now the sudden you're, it's like make decisions that save or cost lives. And you're like, whoa, what? Yeah. What are you talking about? So when you got out of the military, were you just, what prompted you to do the entrepreneur thing? I mean, were you just kind of like, I'm unfit for duty, <laughs> you know, in any other way? Because for me, I was like, I'm the worst employee ever. I need to figure this out. And then business and starting my own hustle called, you know, very strongly. But before that, I, w I just thought I was like a really bad employee that didn't get it because I'd never had a real job. So I was the opposite. I thought that I got out of the military and I was going to be the best employee ever or the best at, you know, whatever traditional career path I took, you know, with my combat um, patch on my arm and, you know, four years of being an active duty officer and four more years in the reserves. Like I thought that I was like going to be going to, I was holding a golden ticket, so to speak. So, you know, that's when I was like, well, let's just go from strength to strength. And let's go to law school. You know, my father's a lawyer. I have family members that have been in law all over the place. And that ended up being the first real train wreck of my career because of my life. Because day one, I mean, Jordan, just picture this. I mean, I enrolled in law school. You know, I dropped 20K Ugh. for the first semester. I bought a condo a, like a quarter mile from campus. You know, just thinking I was committed for the next three years at least. Why not just buy a place and... And, you know, instead of just paying rent, like I was all in day one, I sit down and I'm like, what did I do? It was like the worst sinking feeling of just Ugh. knowing that I was in the wrong place. And I spent the next semester hating every single day, literally being depressed for the first time ever in my life. Like I was not depressed for one day in Iraq, like even though I lost four people in my platoon of 16 men. So that's a pretty brutal and unfortunate percentage and really a sad scenario. Even with all of that disaster mess going on, my first depression ever settled in during law school. And after one semester, I quit. And it was the hardest thing I had to do because I had never been a failure before then. I had never failed right. at anything I had done. This was the first very public, very disappointing in everybody else's eyes failure of my life. What did you learn from that? And I know that's such a cliche question, but a lot of people take a lot of different takeaways from failure. And, you know, for me, in situations like that, I know now that it's more important or just sorry, just as important to learn what you don't want as it is what you do want. But for some reason, and maybe it's an American thing, I can't really tell. But or maybe even a youthful thing, it's kind of like, no, you need to get it right the first time. And mm. if you don't get it right, you're just like weak, like, oh, you just couldn't handle law school. And it's like, no, it sucked. And like, there's no point in lying to yourself and saying, this is great. I like it. Or I'm going to tough through it. That's kind of the American way or maybe the youthful way is like, I'm going to suck it up and do it. But on the other hand, it's like, well, no, if it's the worst thing ever, there's no reason to do that. You know, what did you learn from that failure and which side of the fence did you fall on? Well, this is going to sound cliche too, but it's true is that when I was in Iraq and I lost those four soldiers under my command and I had to stand at the foot of their coffin, you know, as amazing grace is being played, you know, I looked at that coffin and the ultimate sacrifice that these men had made. And I said to myself, you know, I am never going to settle for less than what I believe is waiting for me out there in this world. I'm not going to settle for, you know, just below what I think I can achieve in this life because of these sacrifices these young men made, they're never going to be able to achieve what they had, their potential. I'm not going to basically dishonor that. Kind of a one of those like patriotic, like military, like in the moment kind of pledges that I made to myself. But then when I'm sitting there in law school and I'm like, you know, I made this pledge. Am I really going to sit here and just hate life and just know that what I'm doing is killing me inside. You know, when I was given this amazing opportunity to live, you know, when others that were just sitting in a seat next to me, you know, for the most random reasons, were not given that reason to live. And, you know, that gave me what I call the courage to quit. Because a lot of people don't have that courage to quit, Jordan. You know, they know it's not for them. Like right now, they're listening to us, yeah. our voices right now. And they're sitting in a cubicle at some crummy job. They're making $9 an hour or they're driving to work to a job they hate or they're working out right now after just putting in 10 hours at a job that's going nowhere that they're making somebody else rich. It's because they don't have the courage to quit. And 
it comes with time. I mean, I had to quit many things in my 20s. From 26 to 32, that's all I did, Jordan. I tried the traditional route. I tried law school, quit. Corporate finance, quit. Commercial real estate, quit. I kept quitting all these different ventures because I knew it wasn't for me. And that's finally just you know, two years ago, almost to the day when I was 32 and in 2012, that's when I launched Entrepreneur on Fire that I only was able to because I had yet quit again. Yeah, that, you know, it's funny because again, it's important to learn what you don't want just as it is to learn what you do want. But the courage to quit is an interesting point because most people don't realize that it does take courage. They think quitting is full yeah. well, for quitters, right? So there's people who graduated from law school, got a big law job like me, maybe don't still work there, but took years of their life and were like, I hate every second of this. And they just, looking back on it, they're like, I knew just even in law school that this was going to suck. And I took this job for the money and then I got the job. And then there's the golden handcuffs where you buy a boat to make you happy or a house to make you happy or you get married to get a trophy wife. She costs money, right? There's all kinds of things that people lock themselves into and it becomes very tough to quit. So having it does take courage to quit. I don't think people realize that. And if they do, they're not thinking about it maybe like that. They're thinking, oh, well, it's irresponsible of me to quit. And if you have kids and you have no other plan for income, you may be right. But if and and maybe you're not. I mean, you might still be able to do it. On the other hand, if you're there's I get emails from these guys that are like, I can't quit. I got X, Y, Z. And I'm I'm thinking, wait, you've got what a, a lease that's a little bit above your reach. So break it or end it, you know, quit and then end your lease. Oh, you've got car payments. Sell your car. Oh, you've got student loans. They have ways around that. They've got you know, deferment plans. They've got income based repayment now. So it's, and I'm thinking, unless your reason that you can't quit your job, it, unless they're looking at you and they're like, daddy, we're hungry, then you don't really have a great reason to stay doing something that you despise. And even if you do have kids and a wife, you know, counting on you, I feel like there's ways to phase things out. And most people just don't look at those because they're scared. And Jordan, a real quick point on that. And I can't remember the name of the book for the life of me, but it's, was a book done about people who were terminally ill and they were on their deathbeds. And, you know, most of them were in hospice. So, you know, they had lived right. a long life. They were in their 80s or 90s. And the question was asked to them, you know, what, looking back on your life, do you regret most? And by far, the number one regret is them saying that I wish I had the courage to live my life, not somebody else's life. That was their number one regret. Yeah, I believe that. I mean, a lot of people who write in, it's prevalent in certain cultures, let me put it that way, where people are like, you need to do this, and if you don't get into law school, I'm going to kill myself, and your father's going to hate you, and da, da da And I'm thinking, wow, you just went from being protective of your kid to being domineering over your kid to being like an insane micromanager, like trying to make somebody else live the life that you want. And I get it, sometimes immigrant parents and stuff do that because they want what's best for their kid, but on the other hand, it's it gets it gets to be kind of ridiculous and insane at a certain level. And I can see that everybody has these patterns in their life where even now, even when I look at my own life, I'm like, I'm not completely free of that, where it's, you know, if I had to do it all over again, there's always something that you would change, right? There's always something different that you would set up or maybe you would change things. And not that I regret anything per se, but there's always some aspect of your life that you're doing for someone else and the more you can become aware of that process, I think the happier you'll be in the end because there's a certain level of tolerance where it's like, yeah, it'd be great to not have a job and just kind of bum around, but then I wouldn't be able to accomplish what I think I'm going to want to accomplish later. Even if you're wrong about that, you're probably not going to regret your whole life. But if you're at a job you hate, in a place you hate, with a spouse that you don't really love or whatever, you're going to resent a lot more. Couldn't agree more, Jordan. So when you started your business, I mean, or actually when you started, was it a business or was it just like, I'm kind of figuring out what to do. Let me start talking to smart people. <laughs> so it's pretty interesting actually how my whole journey started. It was getting up every single morning, putting on a suit and tie and trying to convince myself that, you know, this third or actually by now was my fourth attempt at a career post-military was actually going to work out, you know, as I as I jumped in the car and drove towards 
a cubicle, you know, at a job that was just killing me a little bit inside every single day. And it was really, really, to me, the only escape that I had from, you know, during that commute was the actual podcast that I was able to listen to. And at that point, back in those days, in 2012, it was your Andrew Warner of Mixergy, David Seidman Garland, Rise to the Top, you know, our mutual friend, Pat Flynn of Smart Passive Income. These people had podcasts that were kicking out like two, one, sh- one or two shows a week where they were either just talking about entrepreneurship or interviewing other entrepreneurs. And, you know, I, as somebody that was driving a lot and working out a lot too, because that was kind of my only real escape in this moment in my life, was loving listening to podcasts because it was on demand, it was targeted, it was free, and I just loved the whole makeup. I loved podcasts. As soon as I heard them, I got it. You know, it was like, click, like, okay, I get why podcasts are awesome. I totally get this. But that's all I did was listen for years. You know, for like three years, I just listened to podcasts. But then finally, one day, like, I'm driving to work and listening to my favorite podcast. And like, man, this is an amazing episode. Like, he's interviewing an inspiring entrepreneur. I'm getting to see how they're doing this, their failures, their aha moments, their success stories. I'm getting all this great information and then that interview ended and I'm like, okay, where's the next one? And it's like, oh, there is no next one. Like I had gone through this entire podcast two-year back catalog in just two months and the next podcast wasn't even going to be going live for another week. And I'm like, man, like these are great shows, but I drive to work five days a week. I go to the gym three days a week. Where's that podcast that has an inspiring and successful interview with an entrepreneur seven days a week. And Jordan, I went back to my house that night and I, I looked for it. It didn't exist. And I said, I'm going to, you know, to quote Gandhi here, be the change <laughs> yeah. that I want right. to see in the world. And that was the day that I, I went in, I quit my job and I said, I'm going all in. And that was day one of Entrepreneur on Fire. And it was nine months before I made a dime. Wow. I, I mean, I do believe it was Gandhi who said, be the podcast you want to see in iTunes. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. I'm pretty sure that was him. Yeah. You know, wow. So you quit right away being like, I'm doing this full time dot, dot, dot profit. (laughs) That was your plan. Yeah. And I will say this though, because of that scholarship that I got in college, I had no college debt because I knew that I always wanted to have the ability to really run my own life and take that risk when that risk presented itself. I was always very frugal and I had built up about $125,000 at that age of 32. So, wow. you know, a good chunk for that age. And definitely, dude. That gave me a runway, you know, so I knew that it's going to be a long time before I make a dime because I don't know anything about podcasting besides pressing the play button. I need to invest in a mentor and a mastermind and courses. I need to go to conferences. I need to learn how to podcast. I need to get equipment. And then I actually get a, I need to learn how to podcast and how to actually talk into a microphone and interview somebody and then answer questions as well and feed off of their questions and answers, et cetera. And the only way I'm going to do that is if I do it quite a bit is if I actually podcast. You know, there's a quote that I love, if you want to be, you have to do. And so I wanted to be a podcaster. The only way to actually become one was to do that day after day after day. So it took me nine months to see my first real dollar roll into the business, you know, when you take out all the expenses that I was paying every month too. And that's a long time, but I had that runway in place and I had the willingness to invest heavily in myself and all those things that I talked about just a second ago that really put me on the path to success. Yeah, I can definitely see that. I mean, you had like a crazy, you went all in, you had a crazy learning curve, I guess you would say, where you did it all really, really quickly. And it's funny because I usually I I dip my toes in the water of something and I go, oh, okay, I kind of like this. You were just like, I know that I hate what I'm doing now, so I'm going (laughs) to jump in. And looking back, I did the same thing when I got out of law and it was like, oh, I'm just going to start the art of charm. And people were like, let me get this straight. You're running a business that's not profitable. So you're going to quit your law job, which is crazy paid. And you're going to do that full time. Yeah, that's correct. And it's just it didn't make any sense. But whenever you go all in, it's like high risk, high reward, right? Exactly. Um, but it's not true for everybody. So I don't want to come across as like someone's listening right now and they're like, I don't like my job. I'm going to quit and then dot, 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 be an entrepreneur. Because <laughs> you at least had a passion for this. You had a plan f- for this, at least a rough plan. 
and let's be honest, you and I both are here talking because we worked really hard, but also because we got lucky. Like, I don't know where exactly. I probably could think of a few places, but I definitely consider luck to be part of the equation, even if it's a smaller one. And so I think it's dangerous to just be like, follow your passion, because I think that's a self-selecting group of people that say that. I think if we interviewed everybody that followed their passion, it'd probably be like 80, 90% of us living in our parents' basement. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Like 99%. I mean, the reality is, luck is where effort meets opportunity. So you need to be putting in the effort to actually have that opportunity to get lucky. And you know, if you're doing that enough, you're putting in enough effort, then, you know, at some point you're going to get lucky because you're always there. And, you know, that's just the point of, of that work ethic and really focusing and working hard. But I totally want to make an exclamation point on your point that, you know, the right road for a lot of people is the sidepreneur path. You know, it's that path of just, listen, you're making a paycheck now. Maybe you have kids, maybe you have a mortgage, maybe you have bills you need to pay you know, maintain that steady paycheck for now. Wake up two hours earlier, go to bed an hour <laughs> later, stop watching the amazing race at night and work on your business. And over six months, see where you've come to at that point. See if you've gotten any traction that you can move forward. You know, don't just get in and take that blind leap. I was in a unique situation with over 100K in the bank, with very low expenses, no kids, wasn't married, no mortgage. It was just, you know, I was able to live very frugally and it wasn't going to be the end of the world that this bombs. And I was able to go all in, and that's powerful. And if you're listening right now and you're in that situation, then I recommend it because it's awesome to be able to go all in, but that's just the minority of people. And if you can't, read a couple books, The Slight Edge and The Compound Effect. Those two books will show you that just by getting up every day and doing a few things to get yourself moving forward can end up having massive results down the road. That's a really good point. There, it's always like sort of this, um, I guess, granular improvement over time or like the drip that erodes the stone if you're going to go the Chinese <laughs> proverb version of it. Um, but, you know, it's it's good to hear you say that because I think a lot of people are out there and they're like, just do it, leap and the net will appear and all this stuff. And, and there's so many people who went splat because the net did not appear. And I think the sidepreneur thing, there's a lot to that because... I got laid off slash the Wall Street market was terrible slash got paid for nine months of not doing any work. That was a sweet gig. And I had some cash saved up and I already had the lease and everything was in place and the business had already started. So I was in a unique position to do that. When people are like, should I quit my job and do a business? I'm like, no, because you just said do a business. <laughs> you know, and if it's like, should I quit my job and focus on my less profitable but way more fun and tons of room for growth XYZ business, then I'm like, okay, Maybe we can run through some numbers and maybe do it. But if you're thinking you just hate your job, you want to be an entrepreneur, there's probably a longer learning curve than you think because I think a lot of people don't realize, art of, even Art of Charm, not that we're a great example of an awesome sidepreneur business because there's, there's multiple people here, blah, blah, blah. And we sort of invented a new niche in a lot of ways. But like even we weren't profitable for like uh, four years or something. I mean, not very profitable. Let me put it that way. We, had, we were in the black, but I mean, just... Barely. There was a year in Manhattan. I lived in Manhattan where I made twenty four grand. <laughs> you know how hard it is to live in Manhattan with twenty four thousand dollars coming in. <laughs> yeah, that's six months of rent. Yeah, if you're lucky. I mean, dude, and in Brooklyn, you know, and and I lived in in the financial district. And I think a lot of people they don't really realize that the, like there's always luck part of the equation. There's always a little bit of a learning curve. But sidepreneur wise, you can work up and until you're like, man. If I didn't have this pesky day job, I could really expand this because every, you're starting to get measurable ROI on your time. You're not just farting around like trying to get Facebook <laughs> likes or something. You're doing stuff and you're like, man, there's just not enough hours in the day. And for me, my leverage point was I was hiring people to do stuff that I could have normally done if I didn't have to go to the law office and sit in a meeting. Yes. And that was sort of like, wait, I could do this myself and enjoy it and we'd make this money, and that could be my salary. Oh, duh. And that's extremely important. I, I went to a conference this weekend, and a lot of the guys were saying, yeah, you know, eventually my side income eclipsed my day job income. Or another guy was like, I started to make almost as much money with my side gig as I did with my regular job, so I quit. That's when you can scale, because you go, you know what, worst case scenario, even if I stay at the same income level, I'll be okay. So didn't you have what we all had, 
at least as far as I can say, imposter syndrome where you're doing this and you're starting to starting to get traction and you're like, gee, I hope nobody figures out that I'm a knucklehead? <laughs> um, every day, um, including today. I mean, the imposter syndrome, and there's something that I actually love talking about on Entrepreneur on Fire too, is you know, it's just, it lives within us all, Jordan. It's the reason why we're still, that you and I are talking here today. It's the reason why we've survived as human beings all these years. You know, it's the reason why the cavemen didn't go outside in the darkness because they knew that, you know, their imposter syndrome, that voice in their head was saying, there's a saber-toothed tiger around the corner. You know, maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, but it kept them living and it kept them reproducing. And then here we are still with that same imposter syndrome, you know, that just that nagging doubt in our head you know, who am I to release a podcast? Who am I to reach out to Seth Godin, Gary Vaynerchuk, Tim Ferriss, and ask them to come onto my show? Like, who am I to do all these things? And the imposter syndrome almost crushed my dreams and my podcast before I even started, Jordan. I actually put a dollar amount on the imposter syndrome paralyzing me, and that's $100,000. Because when I had everything in place, you know, it was, everything was in place. My mentor, my mastermind, I had 40 interviews completed, August 15th, 2012 was my launch date. I woke up that morning thinking I was going to be ready to roll, pressing that submit button. And instead I was paralyzed with fear. Like the imposter syndrome literally paralyzed me. So I came up with all of these BS excuses and I convinced myself, my mentor, my mastermind, and I pushed it back once for 15 days to September 1st. Same thing happened on September 1st. I pushed it back to September 15th. Same thing happened on September 15th. I pushed it back a third time to October 1st, and it was pure lunacy. I was 100% ready to go, but the imposter syndrome was just strangling me. Luckily, I had invested in myself wisely, and I had a mentor that finally woke up to the fact that I was dishing out nothing but BS, and she reached out to me on September 22nd. I'll never forget the day, and she said, John, if you don't launch your podcast today, because I know these excuses are BS, I will fire you. And the only thing, Jordan, that freaked me out more than launching my podcast was losing my podcast mentor, who was like my lifeboat. So I launched my podcast September 22nd, 2012. And I call it my $100,000 mistake because our first six-figure month of net revenue came in October of 2013, so about 13 months after. The only thing that that five weeks of delaying did was push back everything because the business was just growing as it was naturally growing organically. So those five weeks just pushed back everything that we did by five weeks. So our first six-figure net month of revenue would have been September of 2013, but instead it wasn't until October losing me over $100,000 of that revenue, which I'll never get back, all because of the imposter syndrome. And luckily, Jordan, I launched when I did because you know we speak about luck. Like if I hadn't had my mentor kick in my butt, I never would have launched and probably until probably November. Well, two weeks after I launched, luckily my podcast was out there and live and top and new and noteworthy because it's just how many were out there. And there, you know, this is back in the days that there just weren't as many podcasts. And somebody dropped out as a podcast speaker at New Media Expo. And Cliff Ravenscraft, who I invested in the podcast mastermind, said, well, hey, John, you know, you're in my mastermind. I'm running the podcast track. You've launched your podcast. You've proven that it already has some traction. You've proven that it has some momentum. Will you speak at New Media Expo at the podcast movement? And that right there was just this leverage point. Now, all of a sudden, I'm being featured on their New Media Expo page. Now I'm at the conference, I'm speaking on stage, I'm hobnobbing with all the speakers. It was a total game changer. It took me from a novice to a pro almost overnight, at least in the eyes of the public. Definitely not in my eyes, but Jordan, as you know, perception is reality. All right, back to the show. Did that enhance your uncomfortability uh, or add to it? Because I feel like sometimes when people are like, you don't even know how amazing this is, I'm like, uh, even though I've heard that a lot, I'm still like, thanks, you know, and I just don't want to, I feel a little bit embarrassed by it. And I don't think that that goes away until you just get so narcissistic that like people can't stand you. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't go away. And until so you're right, until so you hit this point where you're just like, 
teetering on the edge of narcissism, then you just plunge in and it's like, okay, who's this tool bag? And <laughs> I actually have a quick, a quick, funny story about that. So in August of this year, 2014, I was asked to go and keynote at the podcast movement in Dallas, Texas, the first podcast only conference that was out there. It was an amazing conference. Jordan, I really hope you make it this coming year in Fort Worth, Texas, in July, it's going to be. It's, it's an amazing conference. It's only for podcasters. It's just only with podcasts. Like Everybody there is like obsessed with podcasts. And there's going to be over a 1,000 people the next one. It was insane. There's already over 700 of this one. So this is like, I'm like, wow, this is going to be one of like the highest points thus far Like in my career. I'm like, I'm at the top of my game. Entrepreneur Fire is a top-ranked podcast. I run the largest podcasting community in the world, Podcasters Paradise. You know, I'm walking off of winning best of iTunes in 2013. Like, I'm going to own this podcast movement, like in a good way. You know, like, I'm the prom queen here. You know, I'm the prom, like my little, you know, I'm holding that little scepter thing. And, you know, I'm so excited. We, we throw a hangout. We, you know, we plan this whole hangout for the Podcasters Paradise community that costs us thousands of dollars. You know, we rent out this ballroom and we get food and music and we print out um, 250 t-shirts for the podcast Paradise members that are going to be there. We go all out. Four days before the podcast movement, I wake up with something I've never had in my life and I hope to never have again. Oh, there's so many jokes I can make right here, but I'll let you talk. I know. Thank you. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll go back and insert some jokes. <laughs> I woke up with a sty in my left eye, which I didn't even I didn't even know what that was. Yeah, that's so gross. I think it's like everyone's had one of those. What is it? It's basically like a zit on your eyelash follicle. Yeah, like your eyelid. It's like on your eyelid. It looks like this white, but the problem with it is that it irritates it to like no end. So my whole entire left eye swelled oh up like gosh. a pumpkin. I mean, it was all it looked like someone had just like Rocky, just taking it to me, but with no, you know, no black and blue, just swollen. And like, so my eyelids drooping down, like I look, you know, like I can't even explain. It was, it was, it was brutal. So I go to the ophthalmologist, who I th which I think is the name of the eye doctor. Yeah. And, you know, they give me some like some medicine and none, none of it works. Long story short, it just takes time. But like bright light was killing me. Uh -huh. Even to blink, it felt like I was blinking on shards of glass. Like it was the worst. Long story short, I get out to Dallas, Texas. And because of just the painfulness of the light, I was like, I have two options, like an eye patch or wear sunglasses inside. Dude, eye patch all the way. Okay. Well, I made the wrong decision because <laughs> okay. it should have been eye patch. <laughs> yeah. Talk about making an impression, bro. But I, I will say I did try the eye patch and I wasn't like able, I probably would have figured it out, but I wasn't really able to walk. Like it was like thrown off oh. my balance because I wasn't yeah. used to it. It was weird. Yeah, I could see that. Depth perception issues and stuff. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I would have probably caught up with it at some point. I knew I was going to be drinking a lot of alcohol. So I'm like, this is a bad combination. Long story short, I went with the shades and, you know, really killer shades. I will say they looked awesome. But the problem is, who the F is this tool slash douche, John Lee Dumas? <laughs> yeah. Wearing sunglasses inside. Who does John Lee Dumas think he is? Is he too cool for school? Like, here he is you know, at the podcast movement. And yeah, like we realized that, you know, this guy's making millions of dollars and he is, you know, getting millions of downloads and he's doing all these things. And like, you know, is he Usher right now? Like, you know, I mean, <laughs> and, and the problem was, is like going into it, I knew that's exactly what was going to happen. It was like seeing a, a car wreck from a mile away, but not being able to swerve. I was like, this is exactly what's going to happen. I can't avoid it because I'm not going to not show up and speak and have our meetup, which we've already spent thousands of dollars on. I'm going to make the most of it, but I'm going to come across as a narcissistic tool. Yeah. <laughs> and that's exactly what happens. <laughs> oh my gosh. So did you have to, did you at least explain to people like, I have something on my eye and that's why I'm wearing sunglasses or did you just ignore the whole thing? The prior. Every single conversation started with that. Every time I gave a speech at this presentation, I started with that. But the reality is, you know, people have selective hearing. You know, I mean, no matter how many times I say it, you know, there's still that big group that's just like, who's this tool? Great. I love that. And I would have said the same thing. Yeah, of course. <laughs> when you go with eye patch, then people know you mean business, right? <laughs> I should have gone yeah. eye patch. Damn. Yeah. You mentioned mentors and, and things like masterminds and things like that. I mean, 
How important were those for you? Because, you know, I joined some mastermind stuff now and some of it's awesome and some of it I'm like, oh, this is almost like, it's almost like a moneymaker type deal. And it's like the blind leading the blind when it's a lower level mastermind sometimes. It just really depends. A lot of those things are very hit and miss. You have to be very, very careful with both. It comes to mentors where I hit it out of the park very luckily because I didn't know what I was doing is that you need to find somebody, a mentor, number one, that does coaching, that is actually a mentor, that you know professes that this is something that they do, hopefully on their website, and find somebody that's in your niche, in your industry, somebody that's where right now you want to be. And so for me, that was my criteria. And I found a successful podcaster who was speaking at the podcasting, you know, who was speaking at the social media conferences, who knew all the people that I wanted to know. And I reached out to her, Jamie Tardy of The Eventual Millionaire, and she became my mentor. And it worked out perfectly because that was the exact criteria that you need to use. Now for masterminds, you need to be very careful because a lot of masterminds are just a waste of time. I'm part of two masterminds now. One is a mastermind with two other guys, Rick um, Mulready and Greg Hickman. And the three of us get together once a week on Skype video. And we have an hour mastermind session where we put each other in the hot seat and we really grill each other and we hold each other accountable and we know each other and we're friends. Once a quarter, we actually go to someplace in the world where we spend four or five days, one or two days having fun, but the other couple days working on the business and we bring in a guest entrepreneur who, you know, brings something else to the table. And that has been a huge success. Like that mastermind, finding the right people and keeping it small. You know, we're like, we're not looking to add to this mastermind because we know that our time is valuable. We only have an hour a week. So we keep it at three people. And then I am in in an in-person mastermind here in San Diego, which is great because sometimes as an entrepreneur, Jordan, you know, you got to get out there. You got to actually see somebody not virtually and actually shake their hand and like sit in the same room and talk. So we have what's called the SD Conclave here in San Diego, where it's myself, Pat Flynn, Caleb Wojcik, Rick Mulready is actually part of that one as well. And it's about a total of 10 of us. And we have guests that come every one as well. And that's a bigger one. And it's just once a month for about four to six hours. And actually, as soon as we're done talking here, I'm actually headed up to Pat Flynn's house for the next SD Conclave. And that's been huge, but I keep it limited to that. So, you know, make sure that you're not in that situation, Jordan, like you mentioned, where it seems like people are very self-serving. There's a lot of self-interest and it's looking like it's just, you know, becoming like either a fraternity or a sorority or a mixture of both. You know, you really want a business focused and centered mastermind of people that you can connect with and that hopefully that bring other skill sets to the table. Greg's a mobile guy, Rick's a a paid traffic guy like Facebook and Twitter. And, you know, and I'm the podcasting and and audience and community building guy. So we all kind of bring different things to the table, which makes for a powerful combination. Yeah, that's important. I think a lot of people will join a mastermind and then realize, oh, like no one here knows what they're doing or the people that do maybe are kind of overselling it. And there's a lot of that. And that creates sort of a disunity where people are like, oh, I can't make the next one. Like, I'm guessing you wouldn't miss this mastermind even if you had a sty on your eyeball, right? <laughs> I'd wear sunglasses and I'd be like, I'm a tool, I know it, let's roll. <laughs> yeah, it would just be a thing that you need to do because you're not going to miss it. It's so important. But there's a lot of things that I've joined in the past where nobody ever goes because there's just no value yeah. there. And then you start to write off all of these yeah. things as, as kind of hokey, et cetera. Um, I know you've got to run really soon, but if you had to give people, you know, advice or, or wisdom, because there's a lot of like, just do it, bro, out there. But I mean, what practical strategies have you taken and just been like, why didn't I think of this earlier? Sometimes it's really simple and other times it's something nobody ever would have thought of. But I know some people are like, read a book every single day, which I think is like really intense. But, you know, some people can do that, I guess. <laughs> Well, let me then kind of move on because I think we've done really good Mm -hmm. with those two prior topics. And, you know, maybe chat for a second about something that you and I both hold near and dear to heart. I'm just really excited, Jordan, about podcasting in general. I actually just got back last week from San Francisco where myself and Alex Bloomberg, um, who's actually, and I'll actually get to his story in a quick second here. We gave a presentation for Creative Live up in San Francisco on podcasting, and it was an absolute blast. And so, you know, you know my story from this interview so far, you know, where I've come with Entrepreneur on Fire, 
But what was really cool is you now you have people in podcasting like Alex Bloomberg, who is the host of This American Life. He's a host of NPR Planet Money, two of the biggest podcasts that are out there. But guess what? This dude's making $80,000 a year as the podcast host of two of the biggest podcasts out there. Luckily, you know, he stumbles across people like Jordan and myself, you know, who are making seven figures a year. And he's like, what am I doing? Like John started a podcast two years ago and he's going to make two and a half million dollars in 2014. Like W whiskey, Tango Foxtrot, you know, WTF. Um, what's going on here? So he woke up to that and he quit NPR very publicly, which is like, you know, who quits NPR? I don't know. Like it never used to happen, but now luckily it's happening. And you know, he started his own podcast up called startup where he's actually going to be starting a podcasting corporation now. And he actually talks about that journey and, you know, he gave a whole presentation about that at Creative Live up in San Francisco. And it's just so cool to see that there's people like him. I mean, he's a 55-year-old man with two kids or 48-year-old, however old he is, with two kids. He has to put food in his kid's mouth. Like He really believes in podcasting as a real business, you know, as much as I have now for a while since I started generating, you know, six figures a month in revenue. And Jordan, as you're seeing over the Art of Charm, there's other people that out there that are seeing this as well with the explosion that's going on. So, you know, what I want to say to people is if you have a voice, like if you have a message, like if you want to start growing an online audience, there's a lot of ways to do it. You can do it via blogging. You can do it via a YouTube channel. But, you know, I am a little prejudiced maybe, but I don't think there's any better way to grow an online audience right now here in 2014 and 2015 than starting a podcast, growing an audience in your niche, listening to that audience when they reach out to you and they say, hey, Jordan, I love the art of charm. And then Jordan's saying, oh, thank you for that. I really appreciate that. By the way, what are you struggling with? And then just start getting feedback from these people that you're now unlocking just these keys and people are saying, Oh, these are my pain points. These are my obstacles. These are my challenges. These are my struggles. And then you, the podcast host, create that solution. And that solution alone could be worth millions. And that's the beauty of creating an online audience that you're actually interacting with. And I mean, I have a specific example of this. You know, with me, I barely knew how to podcast, Jordan, when I started. If you had told me that within a year, I would have launched a community, Podcasters Paradise, that teaches people how to create, grow, and monetize their podcast, I would have said, you're crazy because I barely know how to podcast. But the reality is I learned pretty quickly doing it seven days a week. And now, you know, that's what we do within Podcasters Paradise. We teach people how to create, grow, and monetize their podcast. And just that community alone, by me listening to my audience, has generated over $1.3 million in revenue since we opened the doors on Halloween less than a year ago. Oh, wow. So there's just a lot of opportunity out there for people to grow audiences via this medium of podcasting and to listen to that audience. Hopefully it's niche. You know, hopefully, you know, Jordan and myself, I mean, Jordan started way before me, but we started back in the days where you could get away with being a little more broad and grow these massive audiences that we've grown. It's all about being niche today and really growing that raving audience that's, you know, that starts small and then grows. And that's where the focus is. So Guys, get a podcast out there. You know, Jordan, your audience is amazing. Um, I'd love to give them a no strings attached free gift. My book, Podcast Launch, number one ranked book in all of Amazon on podcasting, eofire.com slash gift. No email required. Nothing. It's just sitting there waiting for them to snag and read at their leisure. Nice. Thanks. Yeah, that's cool. A lot of people ask me how to launch a podcast and I'm like, I don't know. I did that eight years ago, man. <laughs> I'm like the last guy you should ask about how to launch a show. I, 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 my, my first tip is do it as long ago as you possibly can <laughs> yes. because there's less competition. Plant your tree 20 years yeah. ago. Well, Jordan, you obviously need to become a Podcasters Paradise affiliate because every single week we do a completely free live podcast workshop where we give an hour and 15 minutes of pure value on just how to create launch, grow, and monetize a podcast. And then we open the doors up to paradise. And anybody uh, you send our way, it's it's all you, it's all you, dog. Always be closing, right? <laughs> Look at this guy over here. Hustler, baby. Right? It's interesting hearing, you know, the origin story. Because I think a lot of people are like, 
another internet guy, and it's different when you know that people have actually at one point gone through the same stuff that you have to some degree, because I think a lot of folks are like, oh, you know, these guys started a business because they figured out some magic sauce or because they got lucky, and there's definitely part of that, but I think the rest of it is the same pain point, which is, for me, it's I'm the worst employee ever, I'm not cut out for this, is my life over? And for you, it was, this is terrible, is this all there is? No, and that's why your show is so successful, Jordan, because you really dive deep in places that you know really matter to your listeners, and that's really powerful. Thanks so much, John. I appreciate it, man. And uh, we'll be, of course, linking back to you in the show notes. Check out John's show, Entrepreneur on Fire, and go to your mastermind and grow, my friend. <laughs> Love it. Interesting. You know, it's funny. You know someone for a while, you throw them on the podcast, a whole different side comes out. The courage to quit. Interesting. A lot of people don't have that. I didn't have it. I was sort of thrust into it. Now I, no, I quit wherever I can. Not really, but I think it, it does make a difference and a lot of people get stuck in the golden handcuffs. Going all in as an entrepreneur, why it's not for everybody, very interesting. And why luck is always part of the equation. I do firmly believe that. I know a lot of people don't want to hear that. But there is a way to, quote unquote, keep getting lucky. And of course, it's working hard and doing it right. Uh, imposter syndrome, how it can cost you real money or even worse. And last but not least, of course, the value of mentorship, these mindset, these mastermind groups, these are very potent. And something that I do a lot of, a lot of high-end people I know are always, top performers are always doing this. Unfortunately, a lot of bottom-rung dudes are doing this too and trying to sell it and turn it into a thing. And it's a lot of times it can be a waste of time. So you do have to screen for that. But I hope you guys enjoyed this one. And of course, show feedback and guest suggestions. The show is a fanarchy. It's run by you. We rely on you guys to help keep our finger on the pulse. So if you know someone is a good fit for the show, let us know. Jordan at theartofcharm.com. And if you enjoy this one, don't forget to thank John on Twitter. We're going to have his Twitter linked in the show notes. Bootcamp details, bootcamps.theartofcharm.com. Remember, there's two dots in there. And if you're listening to this and you're not subscribed in iTunes or Stitcher or whatever, that needs to change. Get these shows delivered free to your computer or your phone or your brain or whatever overnight. When they're released, you can do that by going to iTunes, search for The Art of Charm, or just go to theartofcharm.com. we got ways to subscribe. Click subscribe. That is it. Of course, we have our iPhone and Android apps available as well. You guys, you know I say it a lot, but go ahead and tell your friends because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. So have a great week. Go out there, get social, leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and everything for the extraordinary man at theartofcharmpodcast.com.